Now, we call this a summit. You see the graphics there. You think of summit, you think of a mountain. In the Bible, the high places, the mountains, are places where people often met with God. Moses on Sinai, and Elijah on Mount Carmel, and Jesus and disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration. We're hoping to have a mountain experience with God in these days. As I said earlier, our goal is not to seek revival in the sense that we're seeking some mystical experience or some emotional high. Our goal in these days, our ambition is to seek the reviver, to draw closer to Him. And so thinking of this as a journey, we're starting this morning and over these next days we're going to journey together So what is the top of the mountain? Where is our destination in these days? It's expressed in Psalm 85, 6. I want you to read this one with me off the screen. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? What we call the revived life. Now, it's called different things. Some refer to it as the spirit-filled life. Some the abundant Christian life based on the John 10.10 promise. Some call it the abiding life. Some refer to it as the victorious Christian life. What I want you to understand is the life that we're describing in these days is the normal Christian life. This was the norm that God intends all of His people to enjoy and experience. Here's the sad reality. Most of us live such a subnormal Christian life that when someone comes along to present and model normal Christian living, it will look abnormal. So this is what we're talking about, the norm of what God intended, this thing we call the Christian life, what God intended this to be. Understanding revival. Well, we'll go first to the dictionary, and we find this rather concise description, to restore to life or consciousness. To restore to life or consciousness. Let's say you're cruising down Interstate 20 here and you come up on a wreck. You're slowing down one lane, you're creeping along, and then you drive past the scene of the wreck. There are the emergency people, and there's somebody laid out there, and you see they've got the paddles, and they're getting ready to apply the paddles on the chest and to try to revive that person. This is the literal meaning of the word. To revive is to restore to life or consciousness. Now, this assumes there is life there to restore. Often in Southern Baptist life, We use the word revive or revival to describe an evangelism event or an evangelistic meeting. And so when I use the word revive or when your pastor used the word revive, perhaps your initial impression was, all right, that uh, rather long-winded evangelist in a rather uh, extravagant outfit there and, you know, ten verses of just as I am. And I'm not belittling that. That is a good work of evangelism that God uses. There is the calling of the evangelist. That is not my calling. I have the calling of the revivalist. The focal point, the target in these days is not the unbelieving, but the people of God. Sadly, and we see this over again in Scripture as well as it's born out in our life experience, we watch the people of God begin to drift spiritually. They find themselves far from God. 
They find themselves again so engaged in the things of this world, the temporal things, that they lose sight of eternal things. And their life becomes more a struggle for survival in a fallen world rather than, again, a victorious Christian encounter with God. And so over again in Scripture, we see God bringing men and calling them uh, to call His people to be restored to the place where we should be, restored in our walk with God, restored in our fellowship with Him, restored in our rightful place and leading our families, restored in our relationship with our parents, with our spouse, with our pastor, with our church leaders, with our church congregation. Many of you are familiar with the name Henry Blackaby. He wrote that excellent study, Experiencing God. He walked through seasons of revival, as we're describing. Here's his description. Revival is a divinely initiated work in which God's people pray, repent of their sin, return to a holy, spirit-filled, obedient, love relationship with God. Now, that's a little clunky as a definition, a little wordy, but I like it because it touches on the themes that we will be focusing on in these days. You have already been praying in preparation. We'll continue to pray. We're going to talk about repentance. We're going to talk about the holiness of God and that we are called to be holy as He is holy. What does it mean to allow the Spirit of God to control our lives? A theme of obedience. And you wrap all of this up in a love relationship with God through His Son, Jesus. Your pastor has already referred to this definition of revival several times. Uh, an old uh, country preacher from North Carolina, Vance Havner, used to say, Revival is a church falling in love with Jesus all over again. My invitation to you on this journey in these days as we ascend this summit of revival, is just to come and fall in love with Jesus all over again. It's as simple as that. Somebody may be sitting kind of scratching your head and thinking, now, a church falling in love with Jesus? I mean, by definition, aren't I here today because I love Jesus? Aren't we by definition in a church because we love Jesus? Take your Bible, turn with me to the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. This will be your easiest text all week long, Revelation chapter 2. And I want to introduce you to a church that needed to fall in love with Jesus all over again. Now typically when someone has you turn to the book of Revelation, you start thinking, the return of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus. And I believe my interpretation is the bulk of the book of Revelation does deal with events uh, before and surrounding the return of Christ. However, I believe that chapters 2 and 3, which are seven letters to seven churches, really focus on the present tense condition of the church. Now, in Revelation chapter 1, John is given this vision of the resurrected Christ. And he sees Jesus, and Jesus is standing in the middle of seven golden lampstands. And we're told that each of these lampstands represents seven ancient churches. They would be located in what we call today a Turkey or Asia Minor. 
And Jesus is in the midst of his churches just as he's in the midst of his people today. And then through his messenger John, he has specific messages for each of those churches. So the first message is to the church at Ephesus. So again in Revelation chapter 2 verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden, golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance. Hey, you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and have not grown weary, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. That's as far as we'll get today. Now, he begins with some words of commendation. He's acknowledging that there are some good things, there are some healthy things in the life of that congregation, uh, things they were doing well. They had a reputation for doing good works. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance. In chapter 3, he writes to the church at Sardis, and he says, you're a dead church, and it's obvious because you have no good works. Well, that was not the case with Ephesus. This was not a dead church. This was a vibrant church, a very active church. He doesn't detail the works, but we can uh, think about what they might have been. Probably evangelism, certainly. Caring for widows and orphans, the disenfranchised there in their community. Uh, feeding the poor. Uh, I'm sure that, there's, that there was a just tremendous activity in and around the church, and the Lord notices that, and he commends that. Secondly, he commends them for their good doctrine. They are believing correctly. Again, in verse 2, you don't bear with those who are evil. You test those who call themselves apostles and found them to be false. These were a Bible people. They had a high view of Scripture, as I'm sure that you do. God's Word was proclaimed week after week in this congregation. So they're doing good works. They're believing God. A high view of Scripture. And then the final note of commendation, they'd been faithfully committed to Christ for over 40 years. Again, verse 3, I know you're, you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. You've not grown witty, uh, weary. Uh, this church was founded by the Apostle Paul 40 years earlier, we find the description in Acts 19. It's a fascinating read there. It's literally a church that is birthed out of a reviving work of God. Following Paul's leadership, Timothy came in as a pastor for a season. And the Apostle John, our author, was also a pastor of that church. And there's a strong tradition that he brought Mary, the mother of Jesus, and she was a member of that church. This church has a great reputation. It's been around for a long time. So it's a church that's working hard. It's a church that's believing right. And it's a church that has a great reputation. Then we get to the heart, the crux of the message, verse 4, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Now just let that, that kind of sink in for a moment. And think about the reality here. Watch. 
A church can outwardly be very healthy in its appearance. Healthy by the things that we typically measure church health by. Nickels and noses, you know. Attendance is good and, and giving is good and there's activity there. And outwardly a church can appear very healthy. But you know, though man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at what? The heart. And Jesus looks into their heart and he says, I'm sad. I'm sad because you have abandoned your first love. You don't love me like you used to love me. You don't love me like you should love me. Now, let's just ponder a moment. Why is that significant? I mean, they were doing so many good things, believing correctly. Why should this be such a big deal during the life of, of Jesus, during his earthly ministry? There was this ongoing debate among the theologians of that day. All they had was their Old Testament. That was their Bible. And they had scrutinized the Old Testament and identified more than 600 specific commandments. So the ongoing debate was, what is the most important commandment? And there were different camps and different views. So a man walks up to Jesus, asks the question, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Jesus, wade into the controversy here. Give us your theory. Without hesitation, he doesn't give his theory. He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6. A verse of scripture that every Jew at one point had committed to memory because it's considered so central. Love the Lord your God with what? All the heart, all the soul, and all the mind. In other words, the love that God requires and the love that God deserves is an all-consuming love. It's not loving God along with this or that. It's a love that surpasses, eclipses any other type of love that you could have. It's a little saying, you've heard it. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. As a Christ follower, as a child of God, there's so many good things that we can do and ought to do. But what's the main thing? To love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, and all our mind. So what is revival? Revival is being restored to that rightful place of loving God with that all-consuming love. All right, I'm a pretty simple guy. I, I, I need details. I need handles here. So what does that love look like, that all-consuming love? What does it look like? Number one, taking the time to develop a personal relationship with God. Taking the time to develop a personal relationship with God. This makes sense. You can't love somebody you don't know. And you can't get to know somebody until you spend time with them. Makes sense, right? I mean, it's true in earthly relationships. It's certainly true in our heavenly relationship. You can't love someone you don't know because part of love is meeting needs. And until you know them, you can't really 
meet those needs. So you can't love somebody that you don't know. And the way you get to know somebody, you spend time. There are no shortcuts. Patty and I met and fell in love on the campus of Baylor University in Waco, Texas. By far, she's the best thing I got out of Baylor University. (laughs) Now, we first met through mutual friends. We went to the same church, same Bible studies, ball games. There came a point I was no longer satisfied to know her as part of the group. I wanted to know her personally, individually. And so just coincidentally, I would show up at a door where I knew that she was coming out of class, coincidentally, and offer to walk her across the campus. And that wasn't enough. And so I got up the gumption to ask her out. Now, where did we fall in love? Again, we went to church together, ball games together, Bible studies. Where did we fall in love? It's on those walks together across the campus. It was the booth at that little Italian restaurant in downtown Waco, Texas, as we spent time together and shared our hearts together. This uh, Psalm 103.7, it describes two very different ways that people relate to God. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. Now watch the distinction. Moses knew God personally and intimately. He spent time with God. So Moses knew the ways of God as much as is humanly possible. He was able to have a deeper understanding into who God is and the ways of God. But watch, the rank and file of Israel, they saw his acts. They saw him from afar. They had a spectator mentality. There I don't know who, but there are people in this room right now that are angry with God. You're angry. You prayed and prayed, and God didn't answer the prayer the way that you thought he should. And you're angry at God, and the reason you're angry at God is because you don't understand the ways of God, and that God may have you walking through a season of suffering or a season of loneliness or a season of failure, because in that context, he wants to reveal himself to you in a way that you couldn't get it otherwise. My prayer in these days is that you'll move from just understanding and appreciating the acts of God, and that you will begin to walk in the ways of God. Jeremiah 9, 23, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Let him who boasts in this, that he understands and knows me. This is the great calling to know God personally and intimately and to walk with him in his ways. Maybe this could be your prayer as we move forward. Psalm 25, 4. Make known your ways, O Lord. Teach me your path. If you'll come with that kind of openness, that spiritual curiosity each night, each session, Lord, I want to learn your ways. God will honor that in your life. Let me give you a second requirement for loving God. Number one, taking the time to develop that personal relationship. But number two, choosing to obey God through loving obedience. Choosing to obey God through loving obedience. 
Jesus, John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my what? Commandments. Now I want you to see. Connect the dots. Loving God is synonymous with obeying God. The way that I demonstrate my love for God ultimately is through obedience. Now, it's true, you are loving God during the praise and worship time, the musical praise and worship, and standing and singing songs to the Lord. And that is an expression of love. But hear me, the acid test of love is not standing and singing songs to Him. It's obeying Him in the office. It's obeying him in the classroom. It's obeying him in the home this week. That's the acid test that demonstrates the genuineness of your love for God. How consistently do you obey? Here's what we're teaching your kids this week, this definition of obedience, which will be ours as well. Obedience is doing what I'm told to do when I'm told to do it with the right heart attitude. Now, let me ask you, parents, If your kids got that in their little heads and began to live that out, would that make your home a different place? (laughs) Listen, that alone is worth the price of admission in these days, okay? And there is no price of admission. But that's the kind of takeaways. That's what we're partnering with you to try to help teach your children in these days. What I'm told to do, when I'm told to do it, with a right heart attitude, just to make sure that they got it. A few verses later, John 14, 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And then we get back to John, the apostle John, now 1 John 5, 3, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. It's a loving obedience. It's a joyful obedience that we want to cultivate. I don't feel deprived because I've chosen to obey God, and so I have to say no to some other stuff. I don't feel deprived. I don't feel cheated. It's a privilege to know Him and love Him and walk in His ways. Here we've just finished Valentine's Day. As a matter of fact, Patty and I had Valentine's dinner on top of Mount, is it Chiha? Did I say that right? We are just driving around, found a restaurant up there last night, had probably the greatest Valentine view we've ever had while we enjoyed our dinner. Well, I heard about a guy who had been uh, challenged by his pastor to be more loving and sensitive and caring to his wife. It took heart. So driving home from work on Monday, he stops by the florist. He gets a big batch of flowers. He goes by the baker and get some chocolates. He parks in the driveway, but instead of going in through the garage, it normally goes to the front door, rings the doorbell, steps back. She opens the door, and he says, holding out his gifts, honey, I just want you to know I feel like I'm the luckiest guy in the world to be married to someone like you. And she just breaks out crying, almost inconsolable. He finally gets her calmed down and says, what's wrong? She said, it's been the worst day ever. The washing machine overflowed. The kids came home from school sick. The dog ran away. And then to top it off, you come home drunk. (laughs) The way that I demonstrate my love to a person is to do the things that please her and to avoid the things that displease her. And this is how I demonstrate consistently my love for the Lord. 
So let me pause and ask the question. And you'll find that we like to ask lots of questions. How's your love life? And by that I mean your spiritual love life. How's your relationship with God? Spending time with God? Growing in intimacy with God? Learning the ways of God? Consistent obedience to the commands of God? How's your love life? You say, Greg, it's not really very good based on those evaluations. Then verse 5 is for you this morning. The words of our Lord Jesus. Remember there from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Now what we have here is a three-step process for restoring first love. Not everything falls easily into a three-step process, but this does. As a matter of fact, I've learned this doesn't just apply to our relationship with God. This is a model for restoring any human relationship as well. I've walked lots of couples in marital counseling situations through this pattern of restoring first love. So let's walk together. Number one, the word remember. Remember from where you have fallen. Now here's our question. Can you remember a time that you loved God more than you do now? Can you remember a time, was there a time in your life that you were more in love with the Lord Jesus than you are right now? Over 30 years of pastoring, I've spent a lot of time in my study counseling a lot of premarital counseling. My last church was a young church, did lots of weddings there, so lots of premarital counseling and then lots of marital counseling. It wouldn't be unusual for my afternoon to look something like this. Right after lunch, I have an appointment with a young couple. I'm going to do their wedding, so I'm going to take them through premarital counseling. Now, I loved counseling with young couples. You know, that, that young love, that fresh love. You know, they sit down on my couch they sit down so close to each other, you can't put a piece of paper between them, right? They have those long, deep looks into each other's eyes. They listen quietly and patiently when their fiancé is speaking and then respond again in such a courteous way. And then they fiddle. You know what I'm saying? He's playing with her hair. She's stroking his arm. I'll be honest, at times it made me a little nauseous. <laughs> you know, I'm trying to help them understand it's not going to always be this easy, right? There's a point at which you're going to have to work at this stuff. What you're feeling right now is not necessarily going to come as easy on the other side of marriage. Well, we do our thing, they leave. And now I have a marital counseling appointment. A couple that's been married 10, 15 years. They come in, and it's like somebody just lowered the thermostat, you know, in my office. Sit on the same couch, but they're hanging over the arms so they don't have to touch each other. The only looks that they give are those cold, hateful stares. Their words are sharp and harsh and cutting. And I think to myself that that couple was once the previous couple. That's how they started, right? How in the world did you go from that to this? They abandoned their first love. So in one of our initial meetings, I start asking questions. How did you meet? 
What first attracted you to her and you to him? What was it that you saw in him or her that caused you to, to decide, I want to spend my life with this person? What I want to do is take them back to that first love reality. And so I ask you again, as a child of God, is there a time in your life that, you can, uh, that you're aware of? May not. But is there a time in your life that you're aware of that you loved Jesus more than you do right now? If so, you've abandoned your first love. Number two, the words of Jesus, repent. Remember from where you have fallen, repent. Now, you may be of that persuasion that when you hear the word repent, you only associate that with unsaved people coming to faith in Christ. Certainly repentance is part of an unsaved person an unregenerate person coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus where we are to repent. But repentance is not isolated to the initial salvation experience. Rather, repentance should actually be a lifestyle. We are continually repenting. In these seven letters to seven churches, six times, twice with the Ephesians, Jesus says repent. Now these are God's people he's addressing. Now, what is repentance? A little compound word that literally means a change of mind. That's what it means, a change of mind. But again, in context, it implies a change of mind that results in a change of lifestyle, a change of attitude that results in different activities. So here's what repentance looks like. I'm going this way. I stop. I do my about face. And now I'm going this way. That's repentance. It's a change of mind that results in a change of lifestyle. Let me take this couple that I'm working with. I know that the, the way that they began to, to drift, uh, they began to take that relationship for granted. They stopped dating. They stopped the courtship mentality. They began to take each other for granted. And then they began to tolerate attitudes and actions that were destructive to intimacy. He lowered his guard and allowed his anger to begin to flare. And she became more and more critical of him. And so basically, this is it's not, you know, real complicated. We need to identify actions and attitudes that we know are grieving each other. And you stop doing those things. And you replace them with actions and attitudes that encourage and nourish intimacy. That's basically what you're taking a couple through. That's the process. And so now, as a child of God, will you identify and turn from attitudes and actions that you know are grieving God? Acts 3, 19 and 20. Repent. There it is. Repent, therefore, turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. I'm going to shoot straight with you in these days, as will Shane. We're not here to tickle itching ears, all right? We're going to speak the truth in love. As a pastor for 30 years... God has given me such a love for his people. I still ask him to grow and, and deepen that love. I have such a love for God's people. And I, I want to help you prevent 
the tragic choices that destroy relationships and destroy reputations. And so we're going to shoot straight with you. You're going to see that beginning tonight. We're going to speak the truth in love that, watch, that times of refreshing may come. Times of refreshing. Some of you are so dry spiritually, far from the Lord. Times of refreshing. Again, the psalmist says, Oh, God, revive us again that your people may rejoice in you on the other side. God willing, there's going to be refreshing and rejoicing as we see what God has done in the hearts of his people. Remember, repent, and to make it simple, one more R, return. Return. That's what Jesus says. Do the things you did at first. That's his language. Do the things you did at first. Return in this relationship with him. A couple of years ago, I was leading a conference in Jefferson City, Missouri. Here's what Lauren shared out of that conference. Coming into the revival, I was a bitter woman and was not aware that I even needed to be revived. I grew up in the church, trusting Christ at a young age, attended a Christian high school and Christian university. However, after school, marriage, two kids, and almost 10 years later, I found myself far from where I started in my faith. I had stopped listening to Christian music, then stopped Bible studies, no longer attended church. I had even stopped praying. I was bitter and didn't know I was. This revival brought me back to Christ, my first love. I'm praying again, attending church, and turning my life around. I'm so encouraged that others were struggling with similar things. I was comforted by the messages. That could be your testimony in eight days. God found me lonely and angry and embittered. But now times of refreshing and rejoicing in the presence of the Lord. Some of the first works, spending time with God in His Word and prayer. That's typically where we first begin to drift. We don't continue to guard our time with God, and there's no shortcuts. You can't love someone you, know, you don't know. You can't know someone you don't spend time with. Consistently obeying Christ's commands. Let me tell you, more than likely, where you began to really move away from the Lord, it's the last time you said no. The last time God said to you something specific, it may have been in an area of seeking forgiveness. It may have been in the area of an attitude that you know is not Christ-honoring. It may have been some kind of destructing, uh, destructive uh, habit that you've allowed to cultivate in your heart. And God pointed to that, and God said, stop that, and you said no. Maybe not that bluntly, but you said it by your refusal to obey. That's where you stopped. That's where you went sideways in your relationship with the Lord. Overcoming destructive emotions such as bitterness, fear, and anger. Some of you are drowning in those things. We're going to see in God's Word in these days that though we don't have to be captive to those things. Living in harmony with others. Using your time, talents, and treasure to build up the kingdom of God. These are just some of the first works that are evidence, the evidence of a vibrant, passionate, 
love for God. 2013, we were in Hopkinsville, Kentucky. Here's what Chris shared with us. The Life Action Team focused in on my heart. I was broken daily with messages of pride, putting off my sin, forgiving others, and the sufficiency of grace. The Lord poured out His Spirit on me and my family. He healed relationships throughout the church and brought true revival to my pastor, the deacons, and the church as a whole. It started out fairly ordinary, but when you see people saved, families brought back together, when you see people who have held grudges for years come to forgive one another, you understand there is nothing ordinary about what God has done. The extraordinary work of God that results in extraordinary results, one of our definitions of revival. So where does the Lord find you today? What is your response? Would you be willing to openly and honestly acknowledge to the Lord, I'm like those folks in Ephesus. Lord, I'm not close to you. I've drifted. Lord, I've allowed things to come in and and distance me from you. Would you be willing to be open and honest about that? You say, well, God will be disappointed in me. Oh, no. God knows all that stuff already. See, God's going to meet you at your greatest point of need, but until you're willing to be honest about your greatest point of need, until you're willing to admit, here's where I am, God's not going to move you beyond that point. 